Welcome back, Crimeaholics. It's your host, Holly, and it has been nearly a whole month since we have released a new episode. Both Kinsey and I are finally in our new states and slowly getting settled and finding our new routines. So if things sound a little bit different today, that's because I'm recording in a hotel. While traveling from South Dakota to Nevada, a friend of mine who happens to have the same awesome name of Holly wanted to try her hand at researching and writing a podcast episode. So today's Missing Monday is one that I had the amazing help from Holly. Also, if you are in the Sumter, South Carolina area, be on the lookout for Holly and her amazing candy shop on wheels coming soon. Dava's Candy Boutique is a newly renovated full-service vintage camper that is like stepping back in time. Pull up a stool to a multi-flavored ice cream float bar and daydream of the good times while listening to the music from the yesteryears. You can enjoy classic flavor floats with an added spice with toppings like cotton candy and waffles. Reminiscing back to your favorite era, shopping for your favorite candies from the pre-1920s to today. My first grab in her candy boutique would have to be the candy cigarettes. I don't know about you guys, but those were always my favorite growing up, and I felt so cool puffing on those bad boys. Again, that is called Dava's Candy Boutique, opening soon in the Sumter, South Carolina area. So let's dive into today's Missing Monday. If you're new to Crimeaholics, Missing Monday is a segment that was created by Kenzie and I to help keep missing persons' name and information in the media the best we can and to help aid in their return home. 90,000 people are missing in the U.S. at any given time, and while some are found alive or deceased, the majority are still missing today. Today, I will be sharing the information about Lee Ochi. When I think back to the age of 13, my mind instantly brings me back to a time in my life that was so exciting. 13. Finally, a teenager and ready to take on the world. Dreaming about the three short years until I could drive. Dreaming about how fun the upcoming school year would be now that I'm a teenager. And of course, boys. While this can be a very awkward stage for most teenage girls, it is still such an exciting time. Unfortunately for the 13-year-old we will be discussing today, those dreams ended just as quickly as they began, because she would go missing just days after her 13th birthday. This case has haunted me for years, and it seems the more I dig, the more questions I have left unanswered. And it all starts in Tupelo, Mississippi. To most, when people hear of Tupelo, Mississippi, they think of Elvis. To others, they think of Lee, Lee Ochi, a 13-year-old girl that went missing from her home 29 years ago. Many questions have still been left unanswered all these years later, which has led to much speculation. I'm just going to go ahead and insert here that this episode will cover some sexual assault and listener discretion is advised. 
Lee's parents, Vicki and Donald, met while serving in the Army while stationed in California. They married in 1977 and moved to Hawaii where Lee was born August 21, 1979. But by 1981, the couple had divorced. Vicki left the military taking Lee with her to Tupelo to be closer to her parents. Donald received orders to Germany, but Lee was able to visit him for a summer, and Donald still holds her visit very close to his heart. After Germany, her father was stationed in Virginia. He remarried and had a daughter named Lauren. During his Gulf War deployment, Lee was able to spend some time with Donald's then-wife and Lee's younger sister, Lauren. Lee spent almost all of her time, though, in Tupelo with her mother and a stepdad, Barney, who would later move out of their home due to a divorce in 1992, just weeks before her disappearance. She was a sweet girl who loved riding bikes, animals, riding horses, going off-road, and even enjoyed shooting guns with her dad. Lee has been described by many as being outgoing and super friendly. She would often talk to neighbors and even became friendly enough with one to come by often to pet their dog. The day before she went missing, she arrived home before her mom and realized she was locked out of the house. Lee knocked on her neighbor's door and asked if she could stay there until her mom got home, but just a few minutes later, Vicky pulled into the driveway. This neighbor states that Lee was in good spirits and did not notice anything amiss. According to her teacher, Lee was a good student and a sweet girl, but she did notice that she would often fidget in class enough to disrupt some of the other students, which made it hard for her to make friends. However, there are reports that she did have a boyfriend who was an 11-year-old named Jordan. They were both outgoing, but both had a challenging time making friends, which is why they got along so well. Jordan recalls her 13th birthday just days before she went missing and fondly remembers giving her a pair of cat earrings that Lee had loved. My friend Holly, when she was doing the research for this case, took it upon herself to be a true podcast researcher and reached out to the father of Lee. And Donald had said that Jordan actually was not her boyfriend. So August 27th, 1992 started differently for Lee as this was the first time she would stay home for the entire day by herself. Vicky recalls talking to Lee over breakfast before she left for work about their plans for the evening. Her school had an open house for the upcoming school year and she planned to attend with her grandmother and then go to dinner at Taco Bell. Vicky arrived to work at 7.50 a.m. and was worried about Lee because the aftermath of Hurricane Andrew led to storms in their area and Lee was actually terrified of storms. Just the night before, Lee had climbed into bed with her mom because she did not want to sleep by herself during the storm. Since Vicky was worried, she had borrowed a weather radio from her boss and put it on her desk to keep herself updated on the storm. As the storms progressed that morning, Vicky grew increasingly worried, so she called Lee at 8.30 a.m. So Vicky and Lee had arranged this special way to call the house so that Lee knew it was her when she answered the phone, and so she wasn't answering the phone and talking to strangers, but... 
It would be that Vicky would call and let it ring twice and then she would hang up and call again. So when she did this, Lee did not answer this call. And there are conflicting reports regarding how quickly she left work after this happened. But according to the Huffington Post, an article written by David Lore, Vicky headed home to check on Lee shortly after that phone call. However, other articles did state that Vicky called her mom and asked her to do a drive-by really quick to check on Lee since she lived close. Their home was on Honey Locust, which was a cul-de-sac at the bottom of a hill in a peaceful and friendly neighborhood. When Vicky made it home, she was disturbed to see that the garage door was open and the light was on. The light was one of those ones that automatically would turn on or turn off as the garage door was opened or closed, and it has been reported that Vicky said to police that she did not recall closing the garage door that day, but it was always a part of her daily routine to close it. And I can see forgetting whether you close it or not. I do that all the time. I hit the button and then I drive away and I'm like five blocks down the road and I'm like, oh my gosh, I forgot. So I can see her being kind of confused there. One of the doors to the home, however, was unlocked even though she locked the doors behind her on the way out that morning. When entering the home, Lee was nowhere to be found. Vicky saw blood and frantically checked the rest of the home, looking through all of the rooms, closets, as well as the shed and the pool in the backyard. Lee was nowhere. In a panic, Vicky called 911 approximately 15 minutes after arriving to their home. Shortly after the call, Vicky's mom, Lee's stepdad, and a reporter that happened to hear about Lee on a police radio showed up to the home followed by the Tupelo police. Once the police were on scene, they called Detective Bart Aguirre. Bart says during an interview on the Open podcast that he was in the middle of teaching a fingerprint class when he got the call. According to a CNN New York article written by Alex Weed, once on scene, Bart noted that there was fresh blood throughout the home and that it was still wet to the touch. Now stick with me while we discuss the blood, as it's hard to describe since none of the crime scene photos have been released to the public, and when Holly spoke with Donald to clarify it, he said that he had not seen any of the crime scene photos, and when he arrived on scene, he had only gone into the garage and the living room. The blood was in Lee's room, the master bedroom, the hallway walls, and on two door frames. There was also a trail of blood from the hallway through the living room towards the back door of the home. On the doorframe had blood and hairs stuck to it. In one hallway was a pool of blood about the size of a man's fist. Although the description of this pool is not detailed, Officer Aguirre was convinced that Lee's head hit the doorframe and she laid on the floor causing the pool. It also looked as if someone started to clean themselves and or the crime scene in the master bedroom, leaving behind a pink haze in the sink on the counter. It also stood out to Bart as he believed that a random intruder would not take the time to clean up. 
In Lee's room, in the hamper, laid her bra and nightgown, both stained with blood, which investigators think came from an injury located above her neck. In the Daily Journal, Bart is quoted saying, quote, Because it looked like the blood had dripped down her nightgown, you would think the injury had to be above the neck, possibly. End quote. Vicky confirmed that this is what Lee was wearing when she left for work that morning. Vicky was also able to tell that there were clothes missing from Lee's closet, along with her reading glasses, a sleeping bag, a pair of shoes, and a pair of underwear that Lee had just received on her birthday. Since DNA was in its early years, they confirmed that the blood was Lee's by blood type. The blood in the home came back as all coming from one person and was type O. It was believed that Lee had type O blood. According to reports, there was no forced entry found in the home, which means Lee likely knew whoever was responsible. Vicky also confirmed that Lee would never open the door for a stranger. It is unclear whether Lee left on foot or by a vehicle, but what was clear is that they could not have gotten far, judging by Vicky's timeline. From the time Vicky left for work and then returned to check on Lee was at most only an hour to an hour and a half. So the search for Lee began with 12 bloodhounds that searched during the harsh weather that included high winds and rain. The bloodhounds also searched the family vehicles. The search ranged about 80 acres, including a ditch near the home, landfills, and a lightly wooded area. Citizens from the community joined the search. In addition to the acreage, they searched multiple neighborhoods and asked locals if they had seen Lee. Jordan called that evening for their nightly chat and was told by Vicky that Lee was missing. According to the Daily Journal, Jordan states, quote, I rushed off the bus to call her like I always did as soon as I got home from school. And her mom picked up the phone. I asked where Lee was and Vicky said she was missing, end quote. At the time, apparently Jordan really didn't understand what missing meant. And so he asked, what do you mean missing? And I guess Vicky said, we don't know where she is. We can't find her. In the following days and weeks, the searches continued. The 29th, they started aerial searches with helicopters. By September 1st, a task force was created, and the following week, a $1,000 reward was posted for any information leading to Lee. Donald was not aware of how dire the situation was until two days later. He told Holly that the way Vicky described the situation led him to assume that she ran away likely with a friend. He also was not made aware of the blood in the home until police told him two days after speaking with Vicky. This is why he did not arrive in Tupelo until September 6th. On September 9th, Vicky received an envelope in the mail that was addressed to Barney and had been mailed from Boonville, Mississippi. Boonville is 31 miles north of Tupelo and the same town a college student claims to have seen a girl that resembled Lee while working the drive-thru at McDonald's. 
This sighting was later proven to not be Lee, according to investigators who were able to find the man and the vehicle described by the college student. Oddly, the address in the envelope was misspelled and contained only Lee's reading glasses. The envelope had twice the amount of postage stamps needed. The FBI and Mississippi State Lab analyzed the envelope and glasses. No DNA was found because water was used on the stamps and to seal the envelope. Investigators and Donald think that the glasses were sent to throw off the investigation. The home of Lee and Vicky was finally sealed off three weeks after Lee goes missing, and at this time, the reward money was more than doubled. Officer Aguirre reassured Donald that the only investigators were allowed inside the home when Donald questioned why the crime scene was not sealed before. Sadly, Donald had to leave for Virginia October 4th to return to duty not knowing what happened to Lee. But before he did, Donald posted flyers and handed them out to truckers asking anyone with information to come forward. Several searches continued into October, but no clues were found. Many people were interviewed, including family members and teachers. Unfortunately, according to an interview on the Open podcast, Lee's boyfriend, Jordan, allegedly was never interviewed, which he recalls thinking that it was very strange. They never called him as phone records would reflect that they spoke daily on the phone. Vicky and Barney, Lee's stepdad, was interrogated at length right after the disappearance. Vicky, Barney, and Donald were all given polygraph tests. Vicky failed her polygraph while Barney and Donald both passed. Vicky was given two more polygraph tests by the FBI and each time she failed. When asked about the failure of the test, according to the CNN New Yorker, Vicky says, I couldn't tell you why. They measure changes in your body, and when your daughter has gone missing and they strap you up to things, I can't imagine anybody's body not reacting. She was never considered a suspect, but remains a person of interest. Donald and Barney were cleared as suspects. Officer Aguirre states that Barney was nothing but cooperative. It's been stated that Barney was at each of the searches and was very forthcoming with any information. Unfortunately, a few years after her disappearance, he passed away. Vicky hired a private investigator, but his findings or lack thereof did not bring them closer to finding Lee. Due to police not giving much information to the public, many rumors started to circulate in the community. One popular rumor was that a local doctor buried her body in a barn. This rumor gained a lot of attention and ended up interfering with the investigation, so much so that police chief Barry White placed a gag order on all of his officers. If any officer not working the case were caught discussing the case, they would be placed on immediate two-week suspension. Donald also entered her information into the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children as well as a child quest. Donald has been on a few different TV shows to gain exposure on Lee's disappearance. While on the Geraldo Riviera show in February 1996, Donald speculated that someone in the family was involved in Lee's disappearance. 
Donald claims that he was ready for answers and enlisted the help of psychics. All of them claimed a body of water was involved. Sadly, this did not bring any new leads. Finally, 14 months after the disappearance on the 2nd of November 1993, a new lead emerges. An 18-year-old farmer by the name of Ray Chance was working on his soybean field in Monroe County when he discovered a human skull. The skull was examined and determined to belong to Lee by a contracted dentist enlisted by the state's medical examiner's office. As the word spread about the skull, Lee's dentist heard the news and contacted the state examiner's office to validate the claims by comparing her most recent dental records. As it turns out, the skull was re-identified belonging to Polly Ann Keith, a 27-year-old missing female from Shannon, Mississippi in 1993. Both of Lee's parents were completely outraged by this, and rightfully so. Vicki wrote a letter to the Hadesburg American about the whole ordeal, and it was published saying, quote, If my daughter's dentist, Dr. Richard Warner, had not personally intervened and contacted authorities himself to verify that the records they used were the most current, the misidentification might never have been realized. Rumors, speculation, and false reports about a loved one's fate cannot be forgotten once placed in your mind. Believe me, little can be done to ease the pain and suffering families experience in these cases, but we surely do not need the state of Mississippi to compound them with incompetence. End quote. It has been noted that Donald has said that this was the most difficult development to navigate through the investigation. All right, so let's get into some of the suspects and theories of this case. And please just keep in mind that these are just theories and a lot of the information comes from hearsay. Let's start with Vicky's theory. Vicky has made it clear that she believes that Oscar, or known as Mike Kearns, has something to do with Lee's disappearance. Mike was a Sunday school teacher at their local church, the Holy Trinity Lutheran, which the family regularly attended. He also lived just a mile away from their home and had horses at the stable where Lee rode and once asked Lee if she wanted to take a ride on one of his horses, according to Vicky. It does not seem that the family had a close relationship with Mike, but they were definitely acquaintances. After Lee goes missing, Vicky claims that Mike brings a photo of Lee over to her home and gives it to her. Vicky has not given any kind of details about this photo to the public, and oddly, she claims that Mike has never been to their home before the disappearance. Sure, he could have heard the address from all the news spreading about Lee's disappearance, but it is very strange that he felt comfortable enough to go to their home and bring this photo of her. Vicky concludes that Mike might be trying to be nice by bringing the photo by, but every time after this encounter, his behavior gets even more suspicious. But the question is, would Lee feel comfortable enough to open the door for Mike? Vicky brings all this up to investigators, but nothing develops from it. 
But in May of 1993, about nine months after the disappearance, Mike Kearns was arrested and charged for abducting and raping a 15-year-old girl from Memphis, Tennessee. He pleads guilty to the charges and was sentenced to 24 years with a 16-year suspended sentence. Shockingly, the circumstances surrounding her case almost mirrored the disappearance of Lee. Mike knew his victim from the same church that Lee and her family attended. Mike drove to the girl's house early in the morning around 7 a.m. while she was home alone. He offered to take her to school, but instead took her to a field and sexually assaulted her. After the arrest, the members of the church started to rack their brains of things that looking back might have been red flags that they missed. After his arrest, Mike tells investigators that he is willing to take a polygraph if his lawyer says it's okay, which we can all guess his lawyer tells him it's a bad idea. They do a search in the area Mike mentioned to other church members, but nothing is found. He has never been charged with anything related to Lee. Now, Donald's theory is a little bit different. While discussing Mike with Donald, he genuinely thinks that Mike is just a scumbag and he has nothing to do with Lee's disappearance. He also said that Mike had a solid alibi. As mentioned previously, Vicky called Donald two days after Lee goes missing and he is unaware of how serious the situation is until days later. Donald was not made aware of the blood until days after the phone call. It's been stated that Donald has said Vicky kept communication between Donald and Lee to a minimum, and he thinks this was done because Vicky was worried that Lee would share too much about what was going on at the home. When Holly asked him how easy it was to communicate with Lee, he said, quote, she made it very hard to see the girl, end quote. In an interview on the 13 podcast, he is asked what he thinks happened, and he says, quote, I believe she was murdered either accidentally or intentionally inside her house. Maybe somebody got real mad at her, maybe knocked her against the doorframe into the kitchen, and she died from it. End quote. This is a popular theory in the community, so much so that Vicky ended up moving out of the area because of all the rumors. It's been reported that Lee often came to school with bruises and one time a black eye. Donald told Holly that this is true and that the bruises wasn't once or twice, it was several times. When she was asked about the black eye at school, Lee explained that she was kicked in the face by a horse. It's clear that she was adventurous, and I would assume she played pretty hard. It is well known that Lee loved horses and spent a lot of time riding them at the local stable. One might argue that the bruising might be normal, but after speaking with her dad, it's very clear that the bruising was not normal. Lee's teacher also mentioned that Vicky often spanked Lee and it might have been more than what most parents would deem appropriate. Even more concerning, a friend of Lee's says that Lee told her Barney would whip her. Also, a neighbor mentioned that Lee confided in her saying that she feared her parents and that Barney locked her out of the home one day as a form of punishment. 
This theory that Lee's mom is involved has also become increasingly popular online with most people thinking the time Vicky spent at work was so short and she knew that the weather would likely be bad before leaving. Police are just as curious about Vicky as the community and question her timeline from that morning. Holly asked Donald if he thought there could be any other suspects. He did mention a name and said that investigators told him this person was a boyfriend of Vicky's and that he could possibly be involved. But Donald looked for him and he could not find him. He questions if this person even exists. I was very curious if any of the evidence collected at the crime scene has been re-examined or retested for DNA in recent years. I was shocked when Donald told Holly about the pooling in the hallway. He said, quote, there was a concentrated blood patch on the carpet and I talked specifically to Danny Thomas, I think his name was. I hated the guy. I asked, did you guys cut up the carpet there on the blood stain? I know there's blood spatter experts. You drop a glass of water on the carpet, it stays on that spot and spreads out under the carpet. Did you tear up the carpet and look at it? He said no, and when I asked why the house wasn't sealed to have proper investigation, he said I'm not taking that woman out of her house. It took 10 days to examine the house and seal it, end quote. He also asked for the envelope and glasses to be rechecked for DNA, but was told that there would be nothing left to test. While my mind can't even grasp this, he then tells a story about something a neighbor saw just days after Lee went missing. Quote, Betty Ford down the road watched the house after the storm had passed and she watched her, meaning Vicky, clean the storm door inside and out and cleaned it completely down. But you have to remember that she's a clean freak, so it's unclear, so it's hard to tell. The investigators never talked to her even after it was brought up to them, end quote. As mentioned before, Vicky has never been named a suspect, but remains a person of interest. We have reached out to Lee's half-sister Lauren, but at this time she has not responded. Lee Ochi was last seen by her mother on the morning of August 27, 1992, at the age of 13 in her home of Tupelo, Mississippi. At the time of her disappearance, she was 4'10 and weighed 95 pounds. She has strawberry blonde hair and hazel eyes. Lee would now be 41 years old. If you have any information regarding Lee's disappearance, please call the Tupelo Police Department at 662-841-6491 or the Federal Bureau of Investigation at 202 202- Three two four three zero zero zero. Crimeaholics, if you are not already a part of our podcast discussion group, make sure you find us on Facebook by searching Crimeaholics Podcast Discussion Group. In there, I will share pictures of Lee and all other information pertaining to this case and any other cases that we cover in the future. You can also follow us on Crimeaholics.podcast on both Instagram and on TikTok. Crimeaholics, that is all for now. Until next time, be aware and take care. Bye.